You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. St. Paul reminds us of the importance of imagination. Just use your imagination for a second and picture Paul walking through the city of Athens. He speaks the language fluently. He's read their literature. He's one of the most educated people of his day. But he comes from the universities of Tarsus and Jerusalem. And now this observant Jew, for the first time in his life, is in Athens. I mean, Athens is the cultural epicenter of the Mediterranean world. Athens is like the Seattle of the ancient world. <laughs> All the creative people live there, right? You know, you know, I mean, you know the names of these great creative people. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. You know about their arts, the architecture, the theater, the pottery, the dance, the painting. I mean, this is it. But as he walks around, Saul of Tarsus is thinking to himself, man, I am a long way from home. And my message, the good news, is a long way from home. See, because of the risen Jesus, Paul has come to understand that the creator has become a creature, entered into time and space, that the creator so loves the world. He sent his only son as a man, and in that man's dying and rising, God is reconciling the whole world to himself. He loves sinners and is making all things new. But as he walks around, there's not much evidence that these people have received this. In fact, the gospel's not yet come to Athens. It comes first through Paul. And they say that in that day, Athens was so filled with idols and religious temples and shrines and religious statues that it was like it was a forest of idols, someone said, Athens. Xenophon, the contemporaneous, writes, uh, refers to Athens as one great altar. And so here's this observant Jew walking around. Everywhere he looks, he sees this stuff. And I, I'm, I'm just guessing what goes through his head is, uh, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, you know, commandment one and two of the ten. And he smells smoldering incense wherever he goes, and he sees dried entrails on rock everywhere. And if, if you were there, you'd have the same problem that Paul has, which is, how do I explain this good news to a people whose cultural ideas are so far away from home, from the gospel? Now, it's an interesting challenge that Paul has, but it's not an unusual challenge to us. In fact, I think it's the very same challenge that you and I have today. The very, that's why this passage is so important for us. I mean, just imagine Jesus walking around University of Washington I mean, what does he notice? What does he see? What does he feel on that campus? Right? When you sit on a bus and go to work tomorrow, you just need to understand, you're in a post-Christendom era. You're in an unchurched world. It's not that people have dropped out of church. Now we've got a generation of people that never have been there. Okay, and they don't know what you know. And they don't believe what you believe. 
and they don't think what you think. And let me tell you, it's not just them, those people out there, it's us too. Because if you're like me, you read the Bible and you go to church, but frankly, I'm not sure I really know what I know about this stuff. I'm not sure I really believe what I'm supposed to believe, and I'm not sure I'm ready to really think that I think the way I want to think all the time, right? See, the distance between the good news of the gospel and the culture isn't just a distance between us and them. It's a distance that's inside our city. It's inside our own minds. But our imaginations have been colonized by a culture that has long since forgotten the good news of Jesus, if it ever knew it. So how will Paul bridge this gap? They say, we want to hear more from this babbler. By the way, the Greek there means literally seed pecker, like he's some bird poking around the dirt for something meaningful. <laughs> it's not flattering. That's the way they see us out there too. It's like, well, we want to hear more because we're having a hard time understanding this. So how will he, how will he close the gap between his message and this culture? And the answer is, in a word, imagination. Imagination. So important. Look, he turns to their art and imagination. That's what we read in verse 29. That's Luke's phrase. Their art and their imagination. And I love the way he does this. We have to take notes here, friends. This is so important. The spirit is wonderful in the Apostle Paul at this moment. He doesn't, there's no smackdown here. He doesn't slam them for the idolatry, right? What does he say? He goes, you know, I was walking through town and I see you're very religious. And, and, and I saw a, a statue with an inscription that said, to an unknown God. And I think you're onto something there. See how, see how kind he is? And then he starts quoting their poets, which would be like, you know, lines from movies for us or from songs. And he goes, you know, because there's one of your poets says, uh, uh, in him we live and move and have our being. And he goes, and I, and I think you're onto something there. And there's another poem. He says, remember that line that says, where, for we are all his offspring. And I think you're onto something there. She's calling up the, the artifacts of their imaginative world, their culture. And he's saying, you know, all these things, all these things, you put them together, I think you really know more than you think you know. But not more than you begin to imagine. See what he's doing there. Art and imagination. Now, I want to draw a few implications from Paul and Athens. And the first one is this. The gospel needs imagination. Okay, think about that for a second. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, needs imagination. All summer long, we've been reflecting in the book of Acts and the upside-down culture of the Jesus movement. And the truth is, even though they said, hey, these are the people that turn the world upside down, it's not the followers of Jesus that are upside down, it's the world that is upside down. That's what we're now ready to learn at the beginning. It's the world that's upside down. You and I live in a world in which the poor are taken advantage of, the weak are pushed to the margin. If we have any idea of peace at all, it's peace through violence. I mean, this is the world that we live in. But Jesus has come now, the Son of God, to speak into his creation of a new way that he himself makes. And he says, I'm turning the world right side up. That's why I've been looking at the practices of this community. There are people who are giving their money to the poor. There are people who are healing the sick, touching the untouchable. These are people who are forgiving those who have harmed them, loving their enemies. I mean, this, you know, we go, that's not the way the world works. 
It's incredibly beautiful. I'm drawn to it, but it's completely impractical. It doesn't even make sense, we say, unless you engage your imagination. So you see, the imagination is absolutely critical to even being able to see the gospel, let alone live with it in your life. What Paul is essentially saying, I think, here in Athens, is looking around and, goes, and he's looking at these people with a smile, and he goes, friends, you and I are made for a better world. You and I are made for a better world. By the way, this is what all good art does. It calls into question everything that we assume about this world and calls us to a better world. That's what you artists do. And, and so Paul explains this, actually. I love the way he says it in verse 26 and, and 27. He, he says... Um, God made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he, allocated, he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him. This is a great statement on the purpose and meaning of your life. What Paul's basically saying is look at your life. God has set the time and place of your life, the circumstances of life, for one purpose, and that's so that you would grope for God and find him. That's the plan. That's what it's all about. God doesn't want to be an unknown God to you. He wants to be known by you, see. And this is what art is, is doing. It's, it's kind of groping. By the way, the language of groping here is the language that could be used of a blind person who's, who's, who's trying to make their way. She's feeling as though everything were dark, trying to create a mental image of reality just through touch. This is really the, what the work of imagination is. It's, it's looking at a world that we don't really see and bringing it to life in our minds, the world of the gospel. The dictionary defines imagination as the actor power of forming a mental image of something not present to the senses or never before wholly perceived in reality. Kind of reminds you of faith, doesn't it? The writer of Hebrews defines faith in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, as this. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So you, you need to form a mental, uh, a mental image of Jesus, of the gospel, of the world that is the real world, in order to have faith and to live with hope. So the gospel needs imagination. Albert Einstein said, imagination is more important than knowledge, for knowledge is limited to all we now know and understand, while imagination embraces the entire world and all there ever will be to know and understand. That's cool. So the, the gospel needs imagination. Second implication is that the imagination needs the gospel. I mean, if you really want to be an artist, I commend the good news of Jesus to you because I think your imagination needs good news. And there are two reasons for this. Our imagination needs the gospel to fix it and to feed it. First, to fix it. The gospel fixes our imagination by confronting fantasy, unreality. See, check this out. There's a difference between the imaginative life and the imaginary life. And Paul doesn't mince words about this. He's not too nice a guy to confront the idols of this culture. Your gold, your silver, your stone, he says it's not God. Don't confuse your conceptions of God with God himself. Those things are not real. You made them. Those are imaginary. 
The uh, Stanford psychologist, Philip Zimbardo, has uh, recorded a fascinating little TED talk. It's brief, it's like three minutes long, you can find it and watch it later. But you don't even have to, I'll tell you what, essentially what he says. Philip Zimbardo, it's called The Demise of Guys. Sorry, men. The Demise of Guys. His contention is that today there's a generation of young men who have so involved themselves with uh, video games, pornography, fantasy sports, that they are losing touch with reality and they are not gaining the capacity they need to actually develop intellectually, emotionally, and socially along healthy lines. And those of you women who are looking for dates are going, yeah, where are those guys, right? I totally get it. Well, Zimbardo is, is saying that we have been attracted by these easy substitutes for the real thing. It's imaginary, right? Um, fantasy football is not real football. It's not even athletic. <laughs> I hate to break it to you. You can do really well. You can win and not ever actually have done anything physical. And, and I'm gonna say the same thing about pornography, right? Why? Like we want pornography because it promises us this kind of quick intimacy in the middle of our busy lives. We reach out for that and we feel like we've got intimacy. You know what we just got? Nothing. There's no intimacy there. There's no relationship there. There's nobody but, break it to you, you. Uh, it's imaginary. So the Apostle Paul is, is saying, look, we're after imagination, not imaginary. If you tell me, you're a young man, you, you tell me, you know, George, someday I'm going to be the uh, CEO of Fortune 500 company, and yet you're skipping classes, and you don't even have a job now, I'm going to tell you, you're living an imaginary life. But if you tell me you've got a vision for something, that you've got a plan to achieve that vision, that you're taking night classes, that you've engaged in a mentor with whom you meet regularly, and that uh, you're working in a job, I'm gonna say, that's an imaginative life. I love where you're going. If you tell me that your husband is abusive and you're hoping to stay with him and be kind to him, that maybe things will get better, I'm gonna tell you, that's an imaginary life. By the way, it's tragically real if this is you. You're not alone. I wanna make sure you find somebody here, whether it's somebody in your small group or a deacon or a pastor. It's an imaginary life. You think it's just gonna get better. On the other hand, if you tell me, you know what, I'm struggling to learn what real love is, and I'm just getting willing now to allow my husband to have to live with the consequences of his bad behavior and I'm, I'm gonna make him feel it, allow him to feel it, and I will come alongside of him, but no longer as his victim, now more as a support for the transformation that he needs. That's an imaginative life. See, the gospel starts to fix the imagination. It starts to bring it back to reality. The difference between the, the imaginative life and the imaginary life is reality. The imaginary life always is an act of escapism. There's drugs or alcohol, pornography, binge watching, even good things like work or hovering over our children or travel or even religious piety sometimes. These are all ways that we can try to escape from the real world. They're not helpful. And the gospel confronts us in that. So it fixes our imagination, but it also feeds our imagination. Here's the other reason our imagination needs the gospel. It's that the biggest barrier I've ever found to imagination is fear. 
It's fear. In Athens, by the way, we don't know which tomb or shrine Paul's referring to, the unknown. But what we do know is that there were many such altars in Athens. You historians tell us that what happened in, back in the day was um, sometimes a part of an altar would break, the inscription would rot or something like that, and they would forget which god, which of the gods, uh, was this altar dedicated to. And rather than risk offending the actual god by guessing or trying to recall, they would just mark it unknown, right? Because they didn't want some judgment to come on them from having gotten it wrong. And I want to tell you, you know, we sort of smile at that and go, oh, that's kind of quaint, right? But the truth is, most of us don't see ourselves as creative people because we're afraid of somebody else's judgment. That's the thing. Most of us say, oh, I'm not really a creative person. I wasn't given that gift. Like Ella's got this beautiful voice. She's a creative person, not me, right? That's what we say. I want to tell you, I don't believe it for a second. You are made in the image of God. God is a creator. God is infinitely creative. God forms an image in God's mind and then brings it into reality. And you do it every single day. You're incredibly creative. You're the most creative thing on this planet if you're a human being, which most of you appear to be, right? You're creative. Give yourself credit for that. The reason you don't think you're a creative person is because you tried to do something creative once. You engaged your imagination, you made something, and you didn't like the way the world responded. Somebody laughed or frowned. And you look, we learn from a very early age, oh, okay, that must not be okay for me. So we fear judgment. Well, I'll tell you what, this is where the gospel feeds our imagination because the gospel has everything to do with judgment. It's the cross of Jesus Christ absorbs all judgment. This is the great act of releasing us, of freeing us from all judgment. God's verdict on us is not guilty, forgiven, beloved. That's who we are. So it's not that we can't fail anymore, but, but failure is not devastating for us as followers of Jesus Christ. We still know who we are. See, So we should be the most creative people around. I mean, every act of creativity exposes you to risk and vulnerability. A business plan, a painting, a song, a bit of software code, a new scientific theory. Every time you take the risk and put that out there, what are your colleagues going to think? What are your friends going to think? What are your neighbors going to think? Well, we, we don't have to care quite as much, do we? Because we know what God thinks. And we know who we are. So the gospel feeds our imagination. One last implication. I've talked to you about the gospel needing imagination, the imagination needing the gospel. But finally, I want to encourage you that gospel-fed imaginations will turn the world right side up. This is about beauty, but it's about the transformational power of beauty in the world. And here I'm thinking of a man named Jim Mackingvale, who may be known to you as Mattress Mac. Down in Houston, did you hear this story? Mattress Mac sees with his eyes what everybody else sees, just like a ton of water and people in deep trouble. But what he sees with his imagination is the city of Houston on his lazy boys. 
And this guy's a true artist, right? He's going, you know, hey, I, I'm, you know, he's a furniture salesman. I've got a bunch of mattresses. I've got a bunch of lazy boys, couches. Like, come on in. And hundreds of people now with their dogs are hanging out in his furniture, having a great time. The National Guard is even sleeping on his beds. And I think, that's an artist. And you know what? You know the story if you've been following in Houston. The Christians aren't always getting the same reputation. Uh, and the truth is that the world is looking at Mattress Mac and going, I want him. Because he has showed me the way the world ought to be. See, that's the world I want to live in, that one. I mean, we saw Charleston, and we said, that's not the world I want to live in. But this is the world I want to live in. And it's the it's it's world of someone who is creative, who used their imagination in the midst of real problems. Paul captures this word, world in a single word, resurrection. Remember, they said he was, Luke tells us he was talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Resurrection. It's about a future world. It's about a better world. It's not about the, the way the world, we, we wish the world, uh, the way the world once was, like nostalgia, like we're going backwards. It's not even about the way the world is meant to be in an idealized world, some kind of wistfulness. Resurrection is about the world, the way the world is going to be. And it's better than either of those. You see, it's not a world in which you and I never fail. It's not a world in which you and I never get sick. It's a world in which God transforms our failures and our sicknesses into something incredibly beautiful. It's about redemption. That's what resurrection means. It means life out of death. It means good out of evil. Strength in the midst of weakness or beauty coming from dust, as we sang earlier. When the good news of Jesus starts to capture our imagination, we start to see things differently. We go back to the places in our lives where we're stuck. We go back to our dating lives differently. We go back to our addictions differently, our conflict. We go back to our wallets and our money differently. We go back to the places where the world is stuck and we see ourselves in a new light, places of racism and violence and poverty. And we say, no, let me dream with you about the power of the resurrection and what it might look like in this place in the world. Gospel-fed imaginations will turn the world right side up. And I'm here to say we need more artists today. So my hat's off to you, those of you who are like the special kind of artists. You may be a filmmaker or a poet or a musician, painter, actor, whatever it is. Special, And we, we want to encourage you. If you know an artist today, send them a card and say thank you for what you do. By the way, I understand a few of our artists are going to be in the narthex, the lobby here after the service. Um, and they, we have some work that's on display for you. But if you're an artist, just flip your collar inside out or take your shoes off or something so that we'll know that you're an artist. And then uh, we want to say thank you for your work. But I, I want to suggest let's be uh, the regular kind of artists, all of us. And that's, let's be a community of people who are profoundly creative. And what the Apostle Paul says is that the highest form of creativity is love. Faith, hope, the greatest of these, he says, is love. He's writing to the city that he'll visit next in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 13, he describes love, and then he goes, you know what, it takes imagination to love. It's like seeing through a glass darkly. You're seeing another world. You can't see it very well. So you have to sort of squint, and then you make the, mo- the rest up in your head. You engage your imagination. Seeing through a glass darkly. Every time you love, it's a creative act. Every time you love, you bring a new world, the world that's coming into existence a little bit more. I want to close by reminding you the story that they told in Athens about a man named Orpheus. 
Orpheus was an artist. And uh, one day Orpheus and a crew of sailors were sailing through the straits where the sirens were singing. Do you remember the sirens? There were these women who sang beautiful songs. They were on either the cliffs on either side of the strait and everybody had to pass through the middle and it was perilous because their song was so beautiful that the sailors would forget home or duty and they would turn the ships into the rocks either way or dive off the boat and into disaster. And you may remember when uh, Odysseus came through the sirens, he asked his crew to lash them to the mast and he filled his ears with wax like I see a few of you have when you come to church. <laughs> and, he, and, 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 and they got through it. But when Orpheus and his crew came through, uh, he didn't do that. What did Orpheus do? He sang. He created. He made more beautiful music. And it wasn't that they couldn't hear the sirens anymore, it's that they had no need to listen because there was something in their midst that was far more beautiful. Well, I think, although the Greeks couldn't have possibly known this, that the song of Orpheus was really a song about Jesus. It was a song about the one who came from heaven to cast himself upon the rocks that we might sail freely through song about the one who in his dying and rising takes those of us who are navigationally insecure to a better home. It's a song about love. Now when the people of Athens heard the Apostle Paul talk in this way about Jesus and the resurrection, I think they recognized that this is what their best stories had always been about from the very beginning. They might have tried to deny it, but they couldn't. Some of them at that time didn't quite have the imagination to know how Jesus fit in their lives, and they scoffed. Some others were intrigued and wanted to hear more. It's going to take them some time. They said, we'll hear more about this. But some heard the good news and believed it, and they went with Paul to reimagine the world. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's in that infinite creative love that we find our hope. World without end, Father, Son, and Spirit, uh, we sing sometimes. We pray that that love would so interpenetrate our souls that we would dream new dreams. We pray that that love would so interpenetrate our church that we would give witness to a new life and a new way of life here at University Presbyterian Church. We want to walk around our city in the same way that the Apostle Paul walked around this ancient city. And we know that some will scoff, but because we lay before them a picture of beauty that's so compelling, we also trust that some will give their lives to you as we have as well. We pray for that. In Jesus' name, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.